everybody. I want to welcome you to today's educational activity titled Edu Educating Frontline Clinicians to Reduce Missed Opportunities for Hepatitis B Screening. On behalf of CME Outfitters, today's program is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences, and it's brought to us by CME Outfitters, an award-winning accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians worldwide. I'm honored to be here as your moderator. My name is Sue Wong. I'm the Medical Director for Viral Hepatitis Programs and the Center for Asian Health at Cooperman Barnabas Medical Center located in Livingston, New Jersey. And I'd like to introduce one of my co-panelists, uh, Elisa. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Elisa Galapani. I am Clinical Assistant Faculty at Fairleigh Dickinson University in Florham Park, New Jersey. I am also an ambulatory care pharmacist at RWJ Barnabas Health in New Jersey, where I practice in two physician office practice sites. Great. Thank you, Elisa. And our next panelist, Chelsea, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, my name is Chelsea Smith, and I have worked in retail health for over 10 years. I'm located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Great. Thank you. Welcome to both of you. We're so honored and Excited to have you here, and we really look forward to the discussion with you. So our goals for today um, are to, uh, for the learners, those of you who are in the audience, um, sorry, let me get my slides going, to, um, to be able to implement universal hepatitis B screening, screening with a triple panel testing to accurately identify patients with active hepatitis B infection. So number one is about screening. Number two for a learning objective is to link patients with hepatitis B infection to appropriate medical care based on interpretation of serological test results. So let's start off with a question for the audience. Which of the following 2030 targets are included in the WHO plan to eliminate viral hepatitis? So take a look at the four um, listed here and go ahead and select a response as to which you think might be one of the targets that is part of WHO's elimination plan uh, to eliminate viral hepatitis. And I see our numbers, our responses coming in. We've got about 20. It's still going up. This is great. People are um, got some thoughts about this. All right, so looks like we have a little pause here at 36. So, um, so this is great. So 90% um, percent of chronic hepatitis B being diagnosed is correct, and that is about half of you guys got that right. Um, that is one of the main goals, and so that kind of just shows you how important it is uh, screening is. Um, the first one in terms of reduction in liver deaths, liver cancer deaths, of course, reduce more morbidity is one of the goals, and it's actually a 65% reduction in morbidity from viral hepatitis B. And then the uh, in terms of treatment goal, our treatment goal is actually much higher than 50%. It's 80%. We're hoping that um, in order to get to elimination, we need 80% of people with viral hepatitis B to be treated. Um, and then vaccination, there's actually a goal for uh, pediatrics, um, but not for adults. So, and 30% of you were honest and said you didn't know. So, well, welcome to this uh, talk and we'll be able to provide some insight on this. Okay, so, so, so yes, if you didn't know already, WHO has set elimination targets um, because we do have the tools. Um, so we believe that we can actually eliminate hepatitis B as a public health threat by 2030. 
And as you all know now, um, the goal is to get 90% of people living with hepatitis B diagnosed and 80% treated um, and a 65% reduction in mortality. Um, so that those are our, our outcomes. So in, in our, ma our major reason for having declared this an elimination target all the tools for eliminating hepatitis B. So we all have just been through the COVID pandemic and we saw how important it was to have screening tools, um, vaccines, treatment options, and all of that has actually been in place for hepatitis B for a number of years um, already. So these are kind of the five pillars. Awareness is one of the first ones. Um, and that's, unfortunately, hepatitis B has had very little awareness in the wider public. Um, and even amongst uh, clinicians. So um, we really hope that uh, with more um, events like this and um, implementation of new guidelines that we can raise the awareness and uh, frontline clinicians are really critical to doing that. It's really not just a specialist um, disease. Uh, and the second one is really screening and testing. As you saw, our gaps are really um, low with screening and testing. We're Globally, only 10% um, of people living with hep B have actually been diagnosed. It's a little better in the U.S., but globally, the gaps are actually quite huge. So we have quite a ways to go when it comes to diagnosing people. Immunization, so that includes both infant immunizations and adult immunizations. For infants, there's hepatitis B birth dose, which is given to babies within one day of birth. Um, and that's separate from the pediatric infant vaccine schedule, which just begins at two months of age, and that's uh, usually a vaccine that's uh, included with combination vaccines, but given as um, three-part series at two, two months, four months, and six months, a um, little variability, uh, but and we do fairly good at that. Um, you know, almost 90% of our infants worldwide are getting those three vaccines, but we still are, have quite a gap with a birth dose vaccine with only 43% of babies around the world getting that initial birth dose, which is so important for preventing mother-to-child transmission. So next is linkage to care. We obviously want to make sure everybody who's diagnosed with hepatitis B is linked to appropriate care and get, gets an evaluation for their hepatitis B. And we know how their liver status is, make sure they don't have cirrhosis and that they're getting labs for their viral load and for their um, liver enzymes to make sure we can see if there is inflammation starting to happen in their liver. Um, and if we do see uh, they do meet certain requirements, I mean, certain eligibility criteria for treatment, such as through viral load or abnormal liver enzymes, then they actually have access to treatment. So, um, and we'll be talking a little bit more about treatment um, uh, further along. So, and in terms of why, you know, why, why is this important? Well, hepatitis B, chronic hepatitis B over time um, significantly reduce, uh, increases the risk of liver cancer. People with hep B are at a 25 to 30 times higher chance of, ha have a higher chance of getting um, of liver cancer. So, and uh, currently we believe in the U.S. it's anywhere from 800,000 to 2.2 million adults with the U.S. Um, so we think, you know, maybe in the middle, somewhere about a million adults have um, hepatitis B. And unfortunately, the majority still don't, are not aware of it. Um, there are many who are considered at risk and don't have protective immunity. Uh, there's been a new vaccine strategy that's been um, recommendations that have been adopted as of last year by ACIP, where we now recommend all adults be vaccinated against hepatitis B. Um, the major sources of transmission include mother-to-child uh, transmission, um, close household contacts, and unprotected sexual contact, not through casual contact, though. And the key point is really that hepatitis B is preventable and treatable, and we have the tools. 
So this is just kind of looking at um, where we're headed and how hepatitis B compares to other uh, global um, epidemics. So unfortunately, um, hepatitis B has, and C actually, this is looking at both, both viral hepatitises have really not received a lot of attention uh, or resources. And so when you follow the blue line here, we actually see that it's been actually on the rise. And if things do not change, um, then actually the deaths from viral hepatitis are predicted to increase by 2040 to actually exceed the number of deaths that we um, that occur from TB, HIV, and malaria combined. So there have been quite a lot of efforts put into TB, HIV, and malaria, and you've actually seen a downturn in, tr in terms of the um, death burden um, for those three diseases. And so the WHO former director, Dr. Chan, said the world has ignored hepatitis at its peril. It is now time to mobilize a global response to hepatitis. So how are we doing in the U.S.? Unfortunately, we're not seeing a lot of progress as we would expect, especially with the tools that we have available. Um, currently in the U.S., we believe that uh, only 35% of people living with hepatitis B have been diagnosed. So it's higher than the overall global burden, but we're still far short of the 90% goal. And 31% of those who have hep B are um, currently under treatment, as opposed to 80% of those who are eligible um, being treated. So we have unfortunately also seen an increase in new hepatitis B infections over the recent years. This has been largely driven by the opioid epidemic, um, which we know has been cause of an increase in a number of infectious diseases. And so there's some work that needs to be done still um, with uh, reducing new infections. And one in five have been linked to treatment. So we still have four out of five people with hep B who are not currently under care um, or treated. And the result is we get eight, we have eight deaths per day from hepatitis B liver disease. And unfortunately, if we don't change things, we'll see more than a 30% increase by 2030. So here's another question for you. What factors are most responsible for the lack of progress towards heavy elimination targets in the U.S.? And I will let you skim through that quickly. And if you can go ahead and select your response, and then we can discuss. Great. So, well, um, this is good. Everybody's on the same page and this is correct. So, um, so it's not actually because we don't have access to drugs um, or medications, but it is because we have poor compliance with risk-based screening and linkage to care guidelines. Um, we don't have a low adherence to childhood vaccine schedules and um, all countries are following equally short. Actually, there's, there is variation in how different countries are doing and 17%, um, so they didn't know. So let's dive into this a little bit more. Um, so yeah, why, you know, what are the gaps and why are we, um, why do we have so many uh, gaps in how we're doing with uh, elimination of targets? Well, as mentioned in the answer to that question, currently we have risk-based hep B screening. So that means as a physician, when I have a patient come in front of me, you know, I have to think, do I do a hep B screening based on this person's risk factors? And I have to go through this list. If you look at the um, USPSTF or the CDC recommendations, it's a very long list. And it's almost impossible for, you know, a med student or a doctor to actually remember all of these risks. And we've actually calculated this where you actually look at the, the risks and it comes out to like, I don't know, like 75% of the population has one of these risk factors. 
But a lot of these risks are not necessarily things that people might um, mention themselves um, because they can be stigmatizing. Sometimes they're not correct, um, and it can make it much more complex, especially when we have limited time with patients. You know, a visit like between 5, 20 minutes with a patient, it's very difficult to actually run through that list of uh, risk factors with a patient. And so, therefore, the, um, the outcome is that often hepatitis B screening is just not done. And then in terms of linking people to care, um, so there could be lack of knowledge, both from the provider, from the importance of getting adequate um, evaluation, could be from the patient not feeling a sense of urgency. They may have been labeled as a carrier and not um, not been told that, you know, chronic infection actually can lead to silent inflammation and they need regular care um, for assessment of treatment. Could be a language and culture. I run the Center for Asian Health here and uh, our patients face a lot of barriers in just terms of not understanding how to navigate our complicated healthcare system. Um, and so if they see, you know, if they are unable to get a, appointments or get understand the follow-up instructions, that can be a real barrier for them getting good care. Um, stigma can be a big issue. Some people are just really still feel ashamed about having this infection and actually would rather just avoid it rather than get care. Um, and they may face stigma from the healthcare community too. I've definitely heard of stories where people felt stigmatized because their healthcare provider assumed they did some sort of behavior um, that was shameful to them. And so they actually uh, really turned the patient off and the patient did not want to get care. Um, lastly, access and cost. We all know that this is a big issue in our healthcare system right now in terms of how much will their copay be if they have to see a specialist, you know, how much will their medicine be? Um, and, uh, and so this is a, a very real issue in terms of people not accessing care. So I want to turn to my pan fellow panelists and see what you guys think in terms of, you know, what are the, some of the things we can do to, um, to improve our progress towards HEPI elimination, especially just kind of thinking about some of the barriers and, and how, we, um, how we kind of utilize the tools we have and, and increase access to those tools. So listen, Chelsea, any thoughts? I can go first. Um, Dr. Wong, I think something that you mentioned that really stuck out to me was um, that risk-based hepatitis B screening is often just not done. Um, it's something that most providers are knowledgeable about and know what to do. But of course, you know, during a lot of visits or even a trip to the emergency room or the hospital, there's a lot to be done in such little time. Um, something that I know you've incorporated um, in, you know, in your practice is automating that hepatitis B screening and just getting it done and having some actionable, you know, steps that can be taken after that, I think are really important, at least to get the process going. Yeah, so what Elisa is uh, referring to is, um, so at our, at our healthcare system, at our, some of our hospitals and our emergency rooms, we have an automated system where if somebody has not had a Hep B test before, um, it actually will propose the order and the physician will accept it and it'll already have the code on it and the actual test. So there's no confusion as to which test you do. Um, and that's been a really uh, good way to scale up screening. And then I would say for those of us who are kind of frontline providing primary care, what I often do with new patients is I just say, all right, for all my new patients, um, you know, we do baseline screening tests. You know, obviously we do, we check your cholesterol and check you for diabetes, but we also do baseline infectious disease screening. Um, and I'll tell them we do hepatitis A, B, C, and HIV. Um, they're all indicated, you know, for, uh, by CDC and USPSTF. Um, and that way there's no, there's no, you know, assessment of like, oh, you know, I think you're risky and therefore I'm doing this. You know, I just go, just tell them like, this is baseline assessment. We do it for everybody. Um, and if people have further 
kind of questions about it. I say, well, you're here, you know, I do cancer-based screen cancer screening and cancer prevention, right? So I'm going to order a colonoscopy or a mammogram for you. And I consider hepatitis B and C screening to be liver cancer prevention. And I think people understand that. You had mentioned the stigma associated with hepatitis B vaccination. I think that's going to be important about educating patients and providing education so it's not a stigmatized. Right. Providing this is this is another preventative vaccine that we can do, and this is part of a standard childhood series that we should be doing for our patients and our children, that you wouldn't have to have high-risk behavior just to be eligible for this type of vaccine or shouldn't end up with some type of liver disorder or high-risk behavior, per se, to be uh, seeking out these types of vaccines. So providing education on the front line about the why behind it, I think, is really going to be beneficial in the elimination because providing that education especially with like a working relationship with a provider, developing that relationship, patients are listening to us and what we, you know, advise them, you know, they might not fully understand, but they're going to know that we have their best interests in mind as providers. Yeah, no, you're so really right. Changing the stigma. I agree. And I think educating providers to know how to say the message is really important too, right? And so you bring up a good point where not just screening could be stigmatizing, but also vaccination could potentially be stigmatizing to some people. Um, and now um, ACIP and CDC recommend universal happy vaccination. So that's another kind of way to break down that barrier by just saying, you know what, we recommend all adults get it because we have such a gap in adult uh, happy vaccination in the U.S. It's like well, we think only 40 percent of adults in the U.S. have ever been vaccinated for hep B. Um, so I think that's a, that's a great message just to say we have big gaps and um, why not why not to get a vaccine that can prevent a chronic you know lifelong infection and can prevent liver cancer. Um, I think people often talk about HPV vaccination um, to prevent HPV and cervical cancer or other cancers as the first um, cancer preventing vaccine, but actually Hep B vaccine was there before so. I think it's also a good thing to say, like, you know, because people will be like, why do I have to worry about Hep B? And then you can easily say, well, if you are, you know, if you would like to prevent liver cancer, this is probably the best thing to do. All right, great. So let's uh, move on to our next topic. Um, let's see. Okay, so... Um, What's exciting is that I think uh, we are anticipating that CDC will be updating their screening guidelines uh, for hepatitis B very soon, um, probably within this month. Um, and they've 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 had this uh, proposed screening recommendation. Uh, they posted it and they received comments from the public. Um, but we believe they will be recommending a universal hepatitis B screening strategy, meaning that it is recommended that all adults over age 18 um, have at least a once in a lifetime test for hepatitis B, regardless of risk factors. And this actually follows what the recommendation is for HIV and hepatitis C as well from CDC. Um, so then it makes it even easier during a visit to say, you know, it's right, if you don't think you've had any of these tests, it's recommended you have a one-time test. And obviously if you have risk factors, you may need it, um, more than one time, but at least for one, you know, it's, it would, it's the, the goal is that at least every adult has it done at least once. So, and what we uh, recommend is that um, it's what will be recommended, we believe, is a triple profile, a triple test profile, which is screening with hepatitis B surface antigen, um, the antibody to hepatitis B surface antigen, which is anti-HBS, 
and then also the total antibody to a hepatitis B core antigen or the anti-HBC. Um, and this really will help us give a complete profile and understanding of somebody's hepatitis B status. And that status would be um, whether they have current infection in which the surface antigen will be positive. If they have a resolved infection, meaning they were exposed at some point, had natural infection and then became um, naturally immune to it, but are susceptible to reactivation because they're particles of hepatitis B that remain in the liver. Um, so if they ever undergo chemotherapy or, or transplant, then they need to be on antiviral medicine to prevent that hep B reactivation. Um, these results will also tell us if they're not immune from either vaccine or a natural infection, and they're considered susceptible and they actually need vaccination. And then finally, if they have been vaccinated and they're immune, the, um, the results will tell us that as well. Okay. So I'm going to move um, and pass it off to Alyssa, um, if you can walk us through what it looks like, these serology tests. Um, so because uh, I think many people in the audience are probably those who are ordering these and, uh, you know, maybe referencing this. Go yes. Ahead. Thank you, Dr. Wong. So as Dr. Wong mentioned, you know, doing the hepatitis B panel is import the important first step, but then once you get the results, what next? What do I do with those results? So the first thing we're going to look at, if you look at the left-hand column, the first thing we have is the surface antigen, okay? So if you are looking at the surface antigen, that will either be positive or negative. So in the green column, in the green rows, we'll start there. If there's no surface antigen, that means there's no current infection, okay? No current or past infection. So that's a good thing. Um, with If you move on to the second column, there's the surface antibody. Now, what that's going to tell you is if you have some sort of immunity to the hepatitis B virus. So what that's telling you is have you had an infection in the past that's now been resolved? Or do you have some sort of immunity not from an infection per se, but from a vaccination or an immunization. So if the individual who's tested has a negative surface antigen and is not infected at that time, but has immunity, you can presume that they have some sort of resolved infection and wanna make sure, as Dr. Wong said, that you're counseling them on reactivation risk. If they're undergoing certain procedures or therapies that may render them to be at an increased risk of reactivation, you wanna make sure that they have therapy. Now, if they do not have a positive surface antigen, again, so no active infection, but they are immune, that's likely due to immunization from a vaccination. So at the very least, always make sure that the patient has completed the full series of, uh, of their vaccination, and then you're good to go from there. Now in the yellow, what you can see is that they are negative for an infection, so negative surface antigen. They also have no immunity, so a negative surface antibody, as well as a negative core antibody, so no exposure there. So that's telling you that they're susceptible to an infection, and that's a big opportunity for us to um, vaccinate. And um, in a little bit, we'll talk about the different immunizations and the scheduling that are accompanied with those vaccines. Now, if we're moving on to the red rose, this is if the surface antigen now is positive, right? So um, a positive surface antigen is telling you that 
the patient does have a, an infection. So what we're going to look at then is the difference, whether it's an acute infection or a chronic infection, because that will tell us again, do they need more linkage for more testing or should we um, consider a recommend treatment depending on you know the practice area that you're practicing in. So you'll look at next the core antibody, and that will tell you their exposure. You're going to look for positive IgM or IgG antibodies, and that will tell you the big difference between whether it's an acute or chronic infection. If your individual that's been tested is positive for IgG, then that's a really big opportunity, again, to link them to care. Um, we will talk about steps to make a more seamless linkage to care um, to provide treatment for individuals that are candidates for it. Great. Thanks, Alyssa. And just of note, so usually the, the triple panel we order is a total IgG um, for the anti-HBC, and that's usually sufficient. Um, there is some role in doing the acute infection if somebody's symptomatic. Um, so I would say the IgM is not required, um, but if you have suspicion because somebody's liver enzymes are, um, are elevated or they're acutely ill, nausea, vomiting, or they have jaundice, then you would add the IgM, but it's not, um, it's not one of the core of the three uh, tests that you need to do. All right, great. Now we're going to transition to opportunities within our healthcare system to screen for hepatitis B and link to care. Um, so we're going to go into an interesting topic and um, area of practice uh, called episodic care, and I'm going to have Chelsea go into that uh, for us. Go ahead. Absolutely. So when we think about how our patients currently are seeking out care, they're you know, sometimes they're not able to get into their primary care doctors, let alone be seen by specialists for several months. So we have to think about how our patients are seeking out care, and they are utilizing retail clinics and urgent care types of settings. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the opportunities that we have in these type of settings to really screen patients for hepatitis um, as far as the screenings. And the biggest thing is physically screening the patients, asking them, have they had been vaccinated? Has anyone done these? tests in the past? Do they kind of know their lab status as referred to before? We also have a lot of patients coming into our clinic who are seeking out testing for sexually transmitted infections or post-exposure for things. So they've had high-risk sexual encounters, and that's an appropriate time to really have that conversation with them. Also, we see many patients or many people coming in that have occupational exposure. They're starting um, they'll be starting school or they're starting a new job and they require titers for that. So we do a lot of titer testing within the clinic. We also see patients for travel health-based services. So they might be going coming to and from countries that hepatitis vaccination is a recommendation. So, you know, along with other vaccinations that we can provide for them, that's a kind of a preventative care prior to their travel. Also, we see patients who are, they may use IV drugs or have a history of some type of medication that our substance abuse history that we might also want to have that conversation with them. We also are, you know, seeing patients for sick visits and they may have signs and symptoms of something that may indicate they may have some kind of liver compromise or they may have some type of um, indication for these types of vaccines. So that's also an appropriate time to screen patients. So one of the biggest things that I would say is the benefit of, you know, 
retail urgent care is a lot of us are linked to major medical records. So what we do within these types of clinics, they can be easily shared with primary care doctors, hospital systems to kind of keep the circle as full as possible for patients. So, you know, really providing just because we're in like an outside setting doesn't mean that our care is not linked. So if these patients, if we're really looking to eradicate this, that we are an excellent, you know, uh, local place that we can really have an impact on on this. So, um, you know, we can, you know, pull immunizations from outside sources and really provide that data sharing. We also, as far as another benefit goes, is we stock tons of these vaccines between the pharmacies, between the clinics, pediatric, adult. You know, we have the newer base series with the two-part vaccinations. Pretty much, we keep those on hand at all times. So if someone would pre present to one of the clinics, we can surely say that as long as their insurance coverage or what we're seeing the patient for was appropriate, that we could initiate that there um, and educate the patient as well on what we're giving them. So in some of the clinics also, we have the ability to order labs on site. For some of our services, it may be appropriate to order certain types of, you know, lab draws for a patient. And not only can we order that as a provider, but we can also, you know, promote compliance for the patient by drawing it right there on site for them. Now, as there are a lot of benefits to um, being able to help patients, we, we do see there are quite a bit of barriers as well. For example, triple panel testing is not currently standard for all types of services provided. So if a patient has HIV exposure, we may do certain types of testing versus, you know, just a standard titer that they need to prove um, if they're going to be starting, you know, nursing or medical school per se. So also, if we had a positive titer or a questionable titer, we can't treat hepatitis B per se in, in the type of setting that we're at, that's usually something that's revert, reserved more for a specialist because there may be more testing or more things that we're looking for that patient as far as holistic care. Um, you know, <clears throat> what we would first do is refer the patient back to their primary care provider, you know, because that would be the person who knows the patient the best. But the big barrier that we're seeing, you know, now is that a lot of patients don't have primary care providers. So in that setting, we have to work with our local health departments, which we do anyway. But what's nice about the local health departments is they have many like offshoot, you know, small clinics or resources. So we can really make sure that that patient has everything that they need and they can get the ongoing continuity of care. And it's reportable as well, as far as some of the things that we're seeing within our clinics. Um, we are able to use the Department of Health reporting site for communicable diseases, and then, like I said, using the satellite locations. <clears throat> and another thing that we run into is that patients may choose to not disclose certain medical history to us. And although we're linked to many outside records, you know, we would have to authorize consent to access any of that information for a patient, and they just may not feel comfortable in the setting to actually disclose that information if they may see us only one search twice, you know, in their entire life, potentially. <clears throat> Many of our patients we do get to know, but, you know, someone may be traveling and you may run into them only one time. So really a take-home message is that we want to be collaborative in the community, and we really want to start the process. We're a great avenue because we're very local, and patients utilize the types of services, you know, for something that may not be related, but it's a very big opportunity for us to have an impact. Um, 
for this globally ongoing. So we really want to work as a collaborative team between specialists, primary care providers, health departments to kind of really eradicate this for the goals of 2030. And, you know, being in such a community site, we really have that opportunity and can network and, you know, be able to make an impact on the patients because we're there for their other health care needs as well, doing other immunizations. We're screening for flu shots. We're screening for pneumonia shots. Why not screen for hepatitis vaccines as well and really break that stigma, you know, Years back, you know, we saw similar things with hepatitis C, you know, and patients are seeking out lab work and things like that for hepatitis. We just need to make it an open conversation and for it to be okay for us to talk about those things, especially when patients are coming to us with sensitive information. We're seeing them for STI testing, things like that, that, you know, we feel comfortable talking about it openly and we're not going to judge patients. So hopefully that it will be reciprocal in the way that they're taking us as well and our recommendations for not only screening, but vaccination. That's great. I, that's a really great explanation of the role of episodic care. And I think we're seeing this more and more present. You know, it's really important for us to think about how um, retail health, urgent care and telehealth can really pay, play a big role outside of traditional um, healthcare systems to help us get to elimination. So I pre uh, appreciate all that. So, and um, just to kind of further the, the understanding of why we need kind of outside of the box thinking, um, this was a study that was done, uh, coordinated by CDC called the CHECK study, uh, ran from uh, 2006 to 2013 and it examined four really large, well-integrated healthcare systems around across the U.S. and specifically looked at about 2,000, over 2,000 patients with hepatitis B. And what they found was really eye-opening. Um, these patients had um, more than, on average, 80% of them had more than one ALT or liver enzyme done per year, meaning that they were actually, they did access the healthcare system. Um, but with what, within whatever encounters they had, um, not many were catching the fact that they needed a happy uh, viral load or uh, viral hepatitis B testing done. So um, the minority, actually, um, only 37% had a hepatitis B test uh, viral load done, and 18% never had any viral load done within the time that they were being followed at these healthcare systems. And then when you look at those who are most at risk with hepatitis B, which are those who, with cirrhosis who really all need to be on treatment, only half of these patients had had viral load done annually. 11% had never had anything done. Um, these patients should be getting in, um, every 6 to 12 month uh, imaging to, to, to screen for liver cancer. Um, but in this population, only 50% had at least one hepatitis, hepatic imaging study. 27% uh, had the annual imaging, which is what we're aiming for. And only 50%, only a little over 50% 50, 50 had actually antiviral therapy. So it just shows that, um, you know, we have a lot of room to go in terms of getting people who are in any kind of healthcare system, who are in a healthcare system to actually get care for their hepatitis B. Um, and so one of the messages that's been coming out loud and strong um, is that we really need to decentralize care um, and we need to broaden it so it does include frontline providers um, who can provide hepatitis B care. So one of the examples of um, kind of guideline shifting, so traditionally the liver uh, societies have been the ones to, to create the hepatitis B management and treatment strategy, uh, guidelines, um, but we had a, um, a creation of primary care-based hepatitis B guidelines, and these are on the University of Washington website. 
Um, and it's a synthesis of the guidelines that ASLD or American Association for the Study of Liver Disease has for hepatitis B. And a number of the authors from the ASLD guidelines were actually on the work group for this as well. Um, and the goal is to really simplify it so that us as primary care providers can also provide um, hepatitis B care. And the way I kind of use this as an example is that, you know, I think of us primary care providers, we tackle a lot of very complex medical uh, conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, CHF, and a lot of these are also covered, you know, it, obviously there's specialists that that also treat such conditions, but not everybody sees a specialist for their diabetes or their hypertension, right? So quite a number of people have it managed by their primary care providers. And for many conditions, you know, when it's not complicated, that's okay, right? If everybody had to see a specialist, you know, we would, they would, um, you know, the specialists would, we don't have enough specialists to see every single person, right, with um, diabetes. And the same, same with hepatitis B, honestly, too. So there are ways that we can simplify it. This set of guidelines uh, removes the E antigen, which has traditionally been a part of the evaluation and management. But with this set, we don't have that. And we make it a lot easier in terms of um, the one cutoff is 2000 for the viral load. Um, and we, instead of looking at whether the ALT needs to be one and a half times the upper limit of normal or two times, basically any elevation of the um, liver enzyme is, is basically what we use as the cutoff for treatment. So I, I invite all of you guys to take a look at that. It's a great reference. Um, and we do anticipate WHO, um, ASLD, and the European Liver Society to be uh, updating their hepatitis B guidelines either this year or um, in the upcoming year or two. So we're looking forward to those being more simplified and also more expansive to allow primary care providers to do this. Because as you could see, there was such a gap in HEPI treatment, only 2% globally being treated that uh, we need to make some pretty significant changes if we're going to get to elimination. All right, so how, um, to my panelists, how can we better integrate HEPI screening and linkage to care into practice workflows? And, you know, those of you who you you all practice in different kinds of settings, I'm curious to ask you, Alyssa, you know, you're in an outpatient setting with um, a number of primary care providers. What do you think is being kind of a possible way of doing this? I think Chelsea mentioned something that really stuck out to me was the collaborative care. Um, of course, that's what I'm going to talk about next. But, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work alongside Dr. Wong and some of our um, our um, patient navigators who are trained and very well educated on the stigmas and just how to outreach patients, how to communicate this with patients and educate them. Um, so, you know, I think just having other team members that have that education, the background, the comfort level to discuss this topic really just opens the door to patients being more welcome and open to, you know, receiving more education and treatment. Um, so I think collaborative care is one of the biggest things that I think really makes a team strong. Yeah, definitely team. And it doesn't always have to be just the physician who brings it up, right? So, yeah. I mean, you can start as, as early as, you know, the patient filling out a form, right? You can have a form that asks if they've been screened for these things. Um, you know, it could be standing orders for the nursing staff. Um, obviously, we have standing orders for a lot of vaccines. Um, so there's no reason, you know, that this cannot be better incorporated through some of those automated things. And Chelsea, you had mentioned um, talking about how you all are often integrated with the electronic health records of the health systems. And so, you know, utilizing EMR to its maximum, you know, uh, benefit, I think, would also include, like, being able to pull and see what patients have had done, right? So a lot of EMRs 
um, for example, Epic, it has these BPAs or the, these best practice ad, uh, um, advisories, which actually do pull from people's history, right? We do it for colon cancer screening mammogram. Have they had this within the past year or five years? For hep C, um, you know, has, have they had a one-time test? And so for hepatitis B, what we're hoping is once the universal testing recommendations are um, out there, that, you know, EMRs would also start tracking that, right? So if your patient is missing it, then it would send an alert or you would see it as a care gap that the patient, you know, needs some sort of hepatitis B test. So I think all of that really helps synthesize information and, and create that kind of um, clinical decision-making tool, right, which we as busy clinicians all kind of need. Any other thoughts? I, I can't speak to every type of, you know, um, episodic type out there, but I could say that for the current, you know, practice that I am in, we are linked in EPIC, you know, which some people are surprised by. And we see those BPAs kind of pull through and we could pull, pull all of that information. You know, and sometimes we actually run into patients that are seeking out vaccination. They've actually already had that vaccination or parts of it. They've had the Tdap and, you know, they're looking for a TD. So really kind of linking up that care, you know, the patients are very grateful for that and providing some of the education because, you know, we our healthcare, we provide educa education to patients all the time and really kind of, you know, not just immunizing, but really explaining the why behind it. You know, we have patients, you know, ask questions all the time and we're more than happy to help them. That's great. But I really like, you know, the written types of screenings for patients that might, you know, they might just think it's, you know, we're doing a TB screening. We're going to check these boxes. You know, I've seen that at the pharmacy as well. They check, 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 check. Or before they get their flu vaccine, they're doing the check marks or COVID vaccines. You know, just part of, you know, this is your routine screening. Have you had this, this, and this? And if they're not sure, you know, then that starts a conversation right there for them. Yeah. No, we appreciate the... um the pharmacies being able to link their vaccines to us as well, because same thing, like you're saying, a lot of times they were like, oh, yeah, I forgot I got that Prevnar shot or I got the first of my Hepi shots, but it spread out, you know. And now, thankfully, there's a two-shot vaccine series, which makes it a lot easier. Um, but, yeah, that data coordination is key. All right. Well, let's move along. Um, Alyssa, I'm going to hand it to you in terms of talking about the role of pharmacists. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Wong. So um, my role within the primary care practices is to um, serve as an ambulatory care pharmacist. Most of us are familiar with pharmacists in the retail setting, you know, going to a pharmacy, picking up your medication. Um, but if you think about it, a lot of the times patients will go to these pharmacies, attempt to pick something up and realize, oh, it's not covered or, oh, I can't pay for that or, oh, what even is this? I don't, you know, my doctor didn't even tell me about this. So placing an ambulatory care pharmacist directly into the physician office practice really helps to prevent some of those barriers from occurring um, to make a more seamless approach between the provider and receiving treatment. Now, the role of the pharmacist, too, is really to contribute to collaborative care. Um, at the end of the day, our goal is to make sure that patients receive high-quality patient care, care that they can afford and um, that they're satisfied with their care. And, you know, it's safe to say that that's probably the goal of every healthcare provider out there. So again, really driving home the fact that collaborative care is really something that should under underlie almost like everybody's mission on the team. Now, as a pharmacist, um, I've had opportunities to recommend alternatives. So for example, if a provider 
prescribe something or a clinician prescribes something that the patient can't afford, you know, we can work together to identify maybe other some formulary options or lower cost options that can achieve the same outcome. I also help to um, work with teams to manage and prevent side effects. You know, Chelsea really mentioned earlier the why. So I'm a big advocate for these are the side effects that can happen, and this is why, and this is how you can manage them and things that you can look out for when you're at home. Then that way, when they have a better expectation of what can uh, or may occur, then they have a little bit more trust and are likely, um, you know, likely to communicate with, with you. Um, as pharmacists, we also help to manage drug-drug interactions and, of course, prevent drug-drug interactions and manage medication errors um, before they occur. Um, we also can recommend and administer vaccines. In the retail setting, a lot of us will go to our pharmacies to get flu shots. Um, but remember, too, there's opportunities in the retail setting as well as the primary care setting to um, receive and complete your vaccine series. Pharmacists can also follow up with your patients. So a lot of the times, um, you know, if you go to a retail store, the, the pharmacist there might say, okay, this is your new medication. This is how you're going to take it. Here you go. And that's kind of the end of it. Um, but being embedded in the primary care setting really allows for seamless follow-up with the patients regarding tolerability, questions, refills, medication adherence. It allows for that warm handoff between the prescriber and the pharmacist to make sure the patient really understands and can anticipate what's going to occur from their therapy. Next, it's our role to make sure if the prescriber um, starts the patient on a medicine that they can afford it. Because at the end of the day, you know, it, it's all great if we start them on uh, hepatitis B therapy, but if they can't afford it, then that's the end of that. So make sure that they can access it. Um, in a little bit, we will talk about different ways to navigate the cost barrier. And lastly, you know, medication counseling is important, educating the patient on why they're going to continue this medication, what it's for, to take it every day, especially, you know, for hepatitis B adherence is very important, um, side effects and what they can look out for at home. Now, Dr. Wong alluded to the different va uh, vaccinations that we have. Um, she was mentioning the new two-dose series that we have, which is the Heplosav B. Um, so that's administered at um, month zero, so at the time of the first immunization, followed by the second and fortunately final dose one month later. Um, using this newer option helps us to um, complete series uh, with better success rates. I know, you know, if you think about a lot of students getting screened for hepatitis B before they go to college, and if they're not immune, they'll get one before they go to college, and you'll be lucky if they get that second one and then they come back six months later. Um, so really um, reducing the amount of doses is something that's helping to um, reduce barriers. In regards to first-line antiviral medications that we have for hepatitis B, we have four therapies available, entecavir, tenofovir, tenofovir alafenamide, and PEG interferon alpha. Now, the first two medications are available generically, entecavir and tenofovir. They are once-daily medicines, and um, since they're generically available, they are on the more affordable side. 
um, depending on the pharmacy. Um, let's say if the patient absolutely has no insurance whatsoever, the cash out-of-pocket price ranges between $30 and $40 for these therapies. Um, but keep in mind, for some people, $30 or $40 a month is not a sustainable um, you know, option for them. But, you know, depending on the situation, it's just kind of good to know your options there. Tenofovir elephenamide is different than the generic of tenofovir disoproxyl in that it offers benefit of having less um, bone mineral density side effects, where with the generic, we were worried more about osteoporosis and reduced bone mineral density. With the tenofovir elephenamide, we see less of that, fortunately, because it concentrates less in the bone. We also see less renal toxicity. So um, with tenofovir disoproxyl or the, the generic, um, we were worried about worsening renal function over time, especially as a medication you would take chronically. So the alafenamide salts um, is available as a brand name medication called Vemlity. Since that is available as a brand name medication, usually that's on the more costly side. Um, but the good news is the manufacturer does offer patient assistance programs to provide free medication if the patient is eligible. And finally, we do have PEG interferons. Um, this is only used for 48 weeks, but it is an injection, and it's usually not as well tolerated. Um, it is an option. You may see it there. Um, but, you know, more likely now that we have once daily oral therapies, these are the ones that you'll encounter. Now, we talked about the therapies, and like I said, it's all nice to know um, if the case, patient can't afford it, then that's really a large barrier. So there are different uh, avenues of, of, of obtaining financial assistance depending on the therapy. So, for example, medications that are available as a brand name medication, so in this case, Bemlody, um, can be accessed through a manufacturer patient assistance program. So, for example, entecavir and tenofovir disoproxyl are not available through manufacturer patient assistance programs. These programs usually are one to two page forms that you can find on the manufacturer website. They're largely income based and um, often do require a social security number and a proof of income. So usually proof of income um, that I've received from my patients is um, social security statements. Um, they also accept tax returns. So it can be a barrier for individuals that maybe don't have a social security number or are unemployed or do not have an address in the United States. So again, just something to consider. The next is that we have grant copay assistance programs. So one example of a grant copay assistance program is the PAN Foundation. Um, so how these programs are different than manufacturer programs is they do not come from the manufacturer. What they are is they're um, different nonprofit organizations where they um, they have separate funds dedicated to certain disease states. So, for example, they may have a list of disease states. Hepatitis B would be on there. And it doesn't really matter what therapy the patient's getting. If the patient's eligible, they will provide a certain amount of funds to pay for their hepatitis B treatment. Um, usually they are capped. So if a patient is eligible, usually you'll see, okay, they're approved for $2,000 for the year. So it's important to make sure that, you know, if their copay is, I don't know, let's just arbitrarily say $300, you know, $2,000 for the whole year 
may not cover that monthly cost. Um, whereas if their copay is $50, then of course that would cover that cost. So again, consider that. Um, sometimes with these programs too, because they only have certain amount of funding designated to certain disease states, you'll notice that they run out of funding. So, you know, it's common, you'll go on the website to try to apply to a grant for somebody and they'll say like hepatitis B funding closed. So it's really unfortunate, but it's the reality of, you know, um, in the health system, like Dr. Wong said, a lot of, um, a lot of people are, uh, is having trouble with affordability. And then there are mail order discount fixed pharmacy, uh, fixed price pharmacies. So some pharmacies like Cost Plus is one. Um, Rx Outreach is another where all medications will be $25 um, or a fixed price. They just have to be income based. And then lastly, you know, the role of the pharmacist is to make sure once they do get these medications that they understand the expectations of therapy, that it is typically a lifelong therapy. Um, how to manage and prevent side effects, what to look out for when they're at home, and to always let their providers know if they're seeing different clinicians or different prescribers, to let them know they are on these therapies so that we can prevent side effects or any other, um, you know, medication errors from happening. Great. So this was excellent. And um, I appreciate that Alyssa and I have worked together for a number of years, and I saw one of the questions in, from the audience was, I want a pharmacist. How do I get a pharmacist in my practice? <laughs> and I felt the same way. Initially, when I was introduced, we were introduced to pharmacists and practices, I didn't understand what the role um, that there were, but and Alyssa did a great job explaining it. And I would say, you know, if you have a chance to partner with a pharmacy school, you know, that's really, that's a great way to do it. You know, in a lot of academic centers, they do have it. But if you're not in an academic center, that's the way we've been able to arrange this um, for her. And so to have her in our office and also pharmacy students who have been amazing as well and pharmacy residents. So, um, so I knocked out one question at least through that. Uh, so we're going to move on. Uh, I see a, a lot of questions, so actually I want to get to them. And our last kind of panel discussion, we're actually just going to touch on this really quickly so that we can get to some of the questions. Um, but this is about like just uh, recognizing that because um, hepatitis B does affect a lot of minority populations, we believe more than 50% of people with hep living with hep B in the U.S. are actually of Asian and Pacific Islander descent. Um, and so, therefore, being able to overcome language and cultural barriers are actually going to be really important, um, not just Asian Americans, but also African Americans, Caribbean, people from the Caribbean or Latin America um, are at more risk for hepatitis B. And so, just so you know, um, there's a lot of resources out there. If you look at the Hep B Foundation website or Hepatitis B United, there's materials on hepatitis B in any language possible. Um, also, ACIP has a lot of uh, vaccine resources in other languages, too. So there are ways of, you know, really helping educate and increase awareness of people um, who don't have English as their as their first language. Um, so I'm going to move on to the questions, actually. Oh, actually, we're going to summarize um, to talk about SMART goals and kind of take away items from this uh, from from this uh, webinar. So, you know, we are really hoping everybody can take away from this to start incorporating a one-time universal hepatitis B screening for all adults into routine practice to increase detection and diagnosis of hepatitis B. And I say at the bare minimum, just order the test, you know. And if there's issues with um, interpreting the test, there are resources out there on the CDC website. If you're not quite comfortable evaluating and treating people, obviously people can be um, uh, referred out. 
but the care strategies are, are going to get simpler for hepatitis B. And so I would say, you know, look forward to that. And as primary care clinicians, we see so much more complex stuff that me as somebody who's doing done hep B for a number of years, I think of diabetes as much harder to um, to treat. And Alyssa knows I'm always asking the pharmacist for help, you know, trying to figure out the different uh, regimens. And for hep B, there's so few, you know, there's literally two main ones that I'm deciding between and the doses are like pretty fixed. Um, second, it's important to collaborate with frontline episodic care, public health, primary care, and specialist practitioners and pharmacists as needed to ensure continuity of care from screening and vaccination to treatment and long-term management of hepatitis B. Um, and some of those specialists who may be able to help you are not just the hepatologist, but also general gastroenterologists, infectious disease physicians also. Um, and those of us who do practice in communities um, with higher population of uh, minorities and foreign-born um, often are actually quite familiar with treating hepatitis B, and certain federally qualified health centers in those areas are actually very adept at hepatitis B as well. Um, and then uh, lastly, ensure that hepatitis B education and care are delivered with cultural humility and language congruency whenever possible. If you have a language line or some of these video translator, I highly, um, you know, encourage people to use those too because, um, you know, we want to make sure that patients understand exactly what we're saying and can ask the questions um, that they have. So we're going to move on to our questions, um, the last couple minutes that we have. So I will, um, you know, read some of these I might just kind of cluster and I might go through some of these kind of quickly. Um, somebody had asked about um, uh, how, how do we do this testing? I think our questions about how to integrate testing have come up a couple through the questions. Somebody was saying, you know, how do we cluster some of these uh, testing together? And I mentioned doing it as you know, with the, your new patients or primary care, you just say it's cancer screening or liver health, right? So liver health, that then you would do hepatitis A, B, and C. You know, you're doing um, screening with, uh, uh, you know, fatty liver is a big thing nowadays, right? So I think people understand the importance of, of liver. Um, somebody said does, it, may, it probably makes sense to screen for all viral hepatitis is screening for one, correct? So same kind of thought process. Uh, somebody had a question on whether the two dose hep B vaccine has the same efficacy as the three dose one, and is it safe in pregnancy? So actually the two dose vaccine is, has more efficacy. So if you have non-responders for hep B, it's actually from the, the three dose vaccine, the Heplosav is actually a really good idea. Um, and uh, so the efficacy is great. Obviously the completion rates are much higher and it is um, safe in pregnancy. Um, do you have, let's see, uh, would you handle the hep B and hep C co-infection at the PCP level or refer to specialists? So I think most people would probably feel comfortable, um, more comfortable referring to specialists, um, either, uh, you know, infectious disease or GI. And just of note, if you are treating for hep C or HIV, you should always screen for hep B. So that co-infection part is, uh, is really important. Um, uh, do you know if there's any talk of requiring triple panel testing for workers for occupational exposure risk? Um, so, and considering that sometimes a surface antibody is all that a place requires. So for um, employee health, sometimes they're, they are not requiring the triple panel, but just the surface antibody. And I believe the SHEA guidelines allow that flexibility. Um, but if you live in an area where there might, might be more endemic um, percentage of people with hepatitis B, it is recommended to do a triple panel. But this person brings up the fact that you may not, um, if you don't do that core antibody test, you won't identify people who have that risk of reactivation. And that's actually one of the big reasons that CDC is going is starting, it will probably recommend doing the triple. That way you identify people who 
then know that at some point they were exposed, and if they ever do develop cancer or on some immunosuppressive, even for something like rheumatoid arthritis, they should be aware that they need to be on antivirals. So thank you for that point. Um, and somebody mentioned, was asking, like, IgM positive could be from reactivation, and that's true. So sometimes when somebody reactivates, um, it's not acute, as in they're just getting infected, but it could be that they're reactivating. I, do you have any advice on how to overcome resistance to antiviral treatment when the patient prefers to use traditional medicine approaches? That's a really good one because we do have people come who are reluctant to take to start medicine, especially if they know it's going to be long term. So, and at this point, we're seeing that um, you know I usually tell people at least minimum five years you'll be on it. If you do e-seroconvert, um, there's some chance you can go off, but. At this point, we're considering a long-term treatment similar to the way we treat hyperlipidemia or hypertension, and we're trying to treat you long-term to prevent um, adverse outcomes. And so, I don't know, Elisa, you you counsel patients all the time on this. You know, what what is your kind of thought about how we approach that? Yeah, I find that it's, I see big cultural differences with medication um, where, you know, if something's working, then they're like, oh, okay, it's it's cured, it's fixed, um, you know. So I really try to educate on the fact that if their viral load does go down and it's working, that means the medicine the medicine is working and likely needs to be continued. Um, so I, I do try to drive that forward. Um, yeah. I think because, right, yeah. this is a difficult conversation, and um, we probably aren't going to be able to answer this today. But I think a lot of it is engaging and trusting in patient, you know, creating a trusting relationship. And often what will happen, people go on herbals and their liver enzymes actually go up. Um, and so then we kind of, yeah. it can be a slow process where we and look at the data together and we kind of under, explain to them the mechanism of action. Um, yeah. And that's very helpful, but it's good to have that conversation with patients. Um, that way you can actually gain their trust, uh, you know, to, to, to keep moving forward. Well, we are at the end of our, um, our webinar, and we really appreciate all these amazing conversations and questions that everybody had. Um, and this will be posted uh, on the CME Outfitters website, and there may be some more opportunities for additional comments to be added to this. And we are happy to, um, you know, be available. Also, if you uh, ever want to reach out, Alyssa and I and um, our information is out there and uh, happy to help um, people get on to, to to learn how to better manage and, and diagnose hepatitis B, just so you know there are hepatitis B echoes out there. And so if you're ever interested in learning more, a number of these echo pro pro uh, programs are um, open to primary care physicians who want to learn from other providers about how to take care of people with hepatitis B. So again, I just want to um, thank you all for your, uh, your time. Um, the slides will be actually uh, provided in a course guide under the resource tab of this program. Um, and if you have a uh, you know, if you want to look, there's plenty of other great education on the CME Outfitters Infectious Disease Hub online. And finally, in order to receive a, a, a CME credit, um, you have to complete the post-test and evaluation that's under the request credit um, tab of this program. Thank you again for joining us today. Uh, be safe and take care.